Hello and welcome to Parents Just Don't Understand, a podcast about children's media, parenting, and the nature of childhood. So today we're talking about a very fun topic, emotional trauma. In particular, we'll be talking about two of our favorite emotionally horrifying films from the 80s and 90s, which traumatized Denise and I as children, and which we have now inflicted on our own children because we are uh, apparently monsters, Don Bluth's The Land Before Time, and Disney's The Brave Little Toaster. So as always, I am your co-host, Kurt. I'm Denise. And uh, for some extra excitement, we are joined this evening by our good friend and fellow media appreciator, Reese, a.k.a. Uh, Darth Gorilla on Twitter and co-host of Gaming Buzz on YouTube. Reese, man, welcome to the show. Hi, good to be on. Thank you for having me. So um, I remember when I originally kind of pitched you on this, uh, it was just kind of like, hey, let's talk about sad cartoons and sad kids movies from the 80s. And I I forget which of us suggested which film. I I remember one of them, you said, that's my absolute favorite film of all time. That would be Land Before Time. Land Before Time is my absolute favorite animated film of all time. Uh. How how do you feel about uh, about the sequels, which we probably won't talk too much about about here? Have you seen them? I haven't seen a single moment besides the commercials for them. I kind I I'm one of those people that act like they don't exist. You're a purist. Yes, a purist. I am. I, I, but I'm not going to throw shade at them. You know, there's a big youthful resurgence, and kids are watching it, so good for them. But I do not watch. There's them. something like what 17, 27? There's so many of them. There's a lot. There's, there's a, a whole lot. lot. But Don DeLuve has nothing to do with any of the other no, ones besides no, just crediting for original stories. He like really that. only did the first one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone definitely thought, I can capitalize on this. Mm-hmm. Let's make more. <laughs> uh, I think Reese and I actually like, fell in love uh, communally over the film Teen Witch. Yes! Um, because it was like one of uh, one of my first karaoke songs mm-hmm. when you used to <laughs> um, So anyways, yeah. So uh, just like general love of like 80s kid stuff. Yeah, that was that was my age range. That's I grew up watching all these movies and listening mm-hmm. to all these songs, and they kind of molded me into the person that I am. Not even kind of; they definitely have. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I, I wanted to talk a little bit first about the experience of watching these movies as a kid, because I mean, first first off, um, both of these movies uh, actually kind of traumatized me more as an adult. I remember being sad watching them as a child and being sad in a very like visceral gut horror sense that I don't feel as an adult, but the depth of sadness feels like it hits me just how dark these films are as an adult more than it did as a kid. I, I 100% back that. So I was sad. Uh, Live for times one that always stuck with me. That was one of the first movies I ever cried at and watching them again, like in later years, I'm more sad now like than I was then because I'm like, these are such heavy-handed and dark things. Like, I mean, we'll talk about it more in the breakdown, but uh, my rewatch of Brave Little Toaster, within the first ten minutes of this film, there's so much trauma that is displayed. And I'm just like, oh my god. Also, (laughs) incredibly relatable. Yes. The blown fuse of the air conditioner. I just... I I just... relate to that so much like have you ever been so angry that you literally blew a fuse like mm-hmm. i mean i guess not literally well, we're well, not while machines. doing a jack nicholson impression. <laughs> <laughs> but um but yes i i don't know it's just awesome did did either of you see land before time in theaters i think i might have i think i might have i was five i was 89 um i i don't have a distinct memory of the theaters of seeing it but i know i saw it at that age. If not, then it was 
on home video maybe a year later after yeah, that. Yeah, I don't think I did. I don't know. My uh, childhood movie viewing experience is pretty much like capped with mm-hmm. tremors. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a good spot to end on, though. Which, which we talked about. We talked about in our previous episode about about protecting protecting our children from from accidentally being terrified of the, the ground. Um, so I yeah I, I'm pretty sure I saw Land Before Time in theaters. I definitely had it on VHS. Yes. I definitely would then inflict it on myself. Um, whereas, uh, Brave Little Toaster, I think I didn't see until we got the Disney Channel, and they showed that movie, like, constantly. Like, four or five times a day. I feel like it was just a non-stop on, on repeat. Yeah, yeah, Brave Little Toaster, I definitely did not see in theaters. That was, I might have been seven or eight, you know, like, in the early mm-hmm. 90s when I first caught it. Probably on Disney Channel or something of that nature. I don't even know if they, like had a major theatrical release for it. If, if I did read, I've read a lot of notes, took a lot of notes of Brave Wilters. I was very taken aback by Brave Wilters today. I'm not going to lie. It shook me to my core. It, it, it crafted my mind out. <laughs> um, but uh, there was very few prints made of it, actually. Uh, Jerry Reese, the director, uh, said. And so few that the one that was actually being mass marketed for a while actually had a little wobble in the in the yes, cam yes. in the beginning of the film. And that is the production release. Like, that was the release that came out to the public. So, and they, they still haven't even done an HD update on it yet. Even though yeah. there's two sequels, which is odd. I and, and I think it's the same situation where um, the sequels have no involvement from from any of the, like, from Jerry Reese or some Reese of... is not in it, and Lovitz does not continue his role as a radio, but they did bring back uh, Thurl Ravencraft, who did the voice of Kirby, yes. and... Um, uh, and Tony the, the Tiger, Tony and Tony. the scary orcs in The Hobbit, and Jim Cummings. Jim Cummings. What? It was, was that not Jim Cummings? No, I'm, that's, I'm, that's a, I'm 100% confident. Okay, that's Thurl? That, okay. that down, down to Goblin Town. That is definitely Thurl Ravens. Oh, I, I was getting confused because Cummings, uh, most famously known for doing the voice of Winnie the Pooh, uh, is the voice of the scary clown during the Nightmare sequence. He actually oh, yes. credited in... Uh, oh, in, we are going to talk about the scary clown. <laughs> yeah. that, is, that is a needless... There's no reason for that to be there. Not at all. Um, apart from like making children afraid of the water. It also what reminded me. What are you talking about right now? Brave Little Toaster. Brave Little Toaster. Oh, oh we're gonna talk. I, I I will recap the scary clown. Um, okay. Um, I saw the Brave Little Toaster for the first time in my twenties. Oh wow. Um, with uh with Kurt Schiller here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so you have me at that. Me to th- I, I feel like that was one of those things where I was like, we got to watch these movies. And that was before we had kids. I'm pretty confident. Yeah. I'm, I'm just that kind of a, a, a person. And uh, I, I, what did you think the first time that I made you watch that film? Um, <laughs> I felt... Uh, I just remember um, loving the soundtrack so much and thinking that this was like, in true 80s fashion... This was a ballad-worthy Broadway musical reiteration yes. soundtrack. Like I hear that um, that little like dual cassette singing in the back room at that uh, in that the one cutting movie. edge oh, yes. cutting that song, uh, and I just see, keep movie seeing show. Uh, cutting oh. edge is the is the, the the newer appliances. Yes, yes, yeah. movie show. Um, which I, I just I in my head, I just envision like Rocky Horror Picture Show, like big dance, yeah. like yeah. big, and I just um I don't know, I just thought that it was all like so ballad worthy, and I'm thinking like Grease too and. <laughs> Uh, and Rocky Horror mixed together. So I just thought that, um, and I also felt like um, I really liked the female character 
um, because I just, I don't know. Chris, the girlfriend or lady friend. uh, She just seemed cool and, like, her skin tone was, like, different. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't necessarily, I don't know. I just thought it was cool that she did not look like him. Yes. Um, So. Yeah. So, okay. So, before we get um, too further into either of these movies, let's go into one of them in particular. So, we're going to start with uh, 1988's The Land Before Time, uh, directed and created by Don Bluth, of course, of uh, all sorts of, of fames. Yes. Uh, Secret of Nim, mm-hmm. um, gosh, Anastasia, mm-hmm. uh, any uh, uh, less um, prestigiously, Thumbelina uh, was, was also <laughs> uh, Don Bluth. Um, gosh, what's that? What's what's the... I'm, I'm really going to embarrass myself here, but what's the arcade game um dragon's yes. lair yes yes, yes. he, he yes. illustrated he, he designed and drew dragon's lair um yeah a, a legend of animation that that kind of eventually would kind of fall into i guess like the the backwaters of the industry um but uh when land before time came out it was uh, he was on the top of his game absolute uh massive smash uh produced by amblin entertainment which was kind of a joint um deal between like Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, and Frank Marshall—the the latter three, all from of, of uh, Lucas Arts fame—massive um, success. Uh, real quick, kind of intro to the plot, if anyone is not familiar with it. So, Land Before Time follows uh, five young dinosaurs of various different uh, species, led by the recently orphaned Littlefoot, although he does not start out orphaned, and that's probably one of the major sources of trauma. Uh, as they journey across a chaotic prehistoric landscape in search of the Great Valley, which is home uh, to the last remaining edible plant life in a time of geologic upheaval. So basically, it's a movie about a bunch of child dinosaurs trying not to starve after one of their parents has been killed. Yes. In front of you, on screen. <laughs> um, so uh, let's let's get some hot takes on this one to get us started. <laughs> So I'm just going to start with uh, what they did right was they're all vegetarians. Yes. Um, which was a complaint that I had about Word Party. You can't put Apex Predator with its prey. Okay. So uh, so I just wanted to point that out from that's, the very no, beginning. That's good. I never even thought of that, but that is good. Yeah, there's a very clear... They, they make a clear dichotomy between um, the sharp teeth, which yes. which they call the, the T-Rex um, a sharp tooth. And I think they also just call them sharp tooth, just in general. And, and I've, when researching it, I think they like... So sharp tooth, is, like you said, is almost like a just a word to describe uh, the meat eaters and predators. But yeah. I felt like that T-Rex was almost sharp tooth. Like that was, yeah, that was him. His, yeah, that yeah. was his name. Um, I definitely also remember it being way scarier than I felt like it was on the rewatch. Like this was the scariest thing I remembered ever seeing before the trauma of the Tremors incident. So so let's let's dig into the the trauma. Let's just go right at uh, the source of, of pain. Um, the movie starts out with uh, our hero Littlefoot um, being born, and uh, his kind of pod, his family unit, is his grandparents and then his mom. Um, and he's kind of, I believe they even specify that he's like the only member of um, his egg clutch that survived. Yes. So it's just him and then his kind of three people in his family unit. Um, he meets a couple other dinosaurs and then within like 
I don't know, 10 minutes, um, his mom dies defending him from a T-Rex in this terrifying, like, in silhouette battle where you see the T-Rex, like, biting chunks out of her. Mm -hmm. And it comes right after all this, like, heartwarming, like, low-key, like, don't worry, this is all friendly and nice. And it's just, boom, like, uh, the, the fight sequence is... Um, I, I think for me is probably the biggest source of like childhood trauma because it is like surprisingly graphic. Like you know what's going on. Yes, they they don't really pull a lot of punches. Mine is showing blood. You know, it's definitely like uh, National Geographic on the Serengeti. Like it's, I think the realist uh, imagination of like predator prey. Um... Yeah, and it to be clear, it doesn't. It doesn't do the Bambi thing where it cuts all, away. All no, it's yes. like, it, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, again, it like doesn't show blood really, but it shows the T-Rex like, like attacking his mom and it shows them fighting in shadow and it shows uh, Littlefoot like running away, being horrified. And uh, you know, you know, as a kid, like what's going on. So um, his mom dies. Uh, and he gets separated from the rest of the dinosaurs who kind of live in, um, they live in kind of like a temporary safe zone mm -hmm. and they're talking about migrating to the Great Valley, the Great Valley. which is like the permanent yeah. safe zone where there's going to be tree stars, which is their term for, for like leaves. And there's, I remember there's this really beautifully animated sequence of like his mom finds, oh gosh, this feels bad even talking about it. His mom <laughs> finds one leaf on a tree and it's like, here's this gift from me. This is a tree star. Take good care of it where we're going there'll be lots more and then of course like uh she goes away and now this is like oh it's the last gift from his mom to yeah. him um and they do not shy away from discussing the death of the mom because one of the first things that happens is um he, there's that sequence where he sees what he thinks is her shadow yes but it's actually his own shadow and I got, I feel, I, again, I feel bad, I feel bad, like, talking about this. Like, it hurts, it hurts my heart. I, so. I didn't remember this part being particularly traumatic, but when we were re-watching it with our three-year-old, she was like, where did his mommy go? Oh, no. And that was hard. Yeah. Um, because a recurring theme in like current children's TV show is that parents come back and there's right. even like Daniel Tiger sings about it. And, um, and we, the book we were reading tonight was, uh, Lama Lama Mrs. Mama, which is about being, going to school, but the parents come back and okay. pick you back up. And they were just, yeah, not having it in the eighties. <laughs> this this was something that uh, this is a big reason why this movie resonated with me so much for so long. I um from a household where I had a single mother, and it was me, my single mother, and our grandparents. And I remember watching this as a small child and like realizing how how hard that hit, like to mm -hmm. to not have that matriarch like you know figure in your life, and that's like I said, it devastated me. Like I'm just getting like getting goosebumps like talking about it, thinking about it, and even watching it. I remember I went through a big movie renaissance probably in my latter teens, like 18, 19, and I wanted to go back and watch all these old movies that like I grew up on and uh, like rewatch them, see if they still hold up, and even still. Those, those scenes with, with Littlefoot and his mother as she's dying, she's talking to him about going to Great Valley and like living in the tree star leaf and like as long as you have this leaf, like I'll always be with you. Like those are things that like are elements that like 
at 18, 19, I'm watching this. I'm like, oh my God, it's devastating me now. I can't think of the mind of a three-year-old or a four-year-old watching these movies. And I did. I watched that movie when I was four or five years old. And it's it's crazy to see how how like how tactfully they handle it, but still how upfront they are with like, you know, putting death in front of children. Yeah, I, I don't know that they would approach it this way now. I feel like if they did, there would be a million think pieces and blog articles about like, is this movie good for kids? And in was it eighty eight, they just didn't care. They yeah. just they just didn't care. They just were like, Yeah, this is this is gonna happen. We're gonna or, we're gonna traumatize. Or these maybe kids. <laughs> they're realists, right? Because there's worse things than this on the news. This is true. And now, it makes me think of like uh, movies like Up that are out now. Like, and that's one that everyone goes to when you talk about traumatic openings for movies. And literally, the first five minutes of that movie are going to make you want to bawl your eyes out. And it's very uplifting afterwards and everything. But it still hits a very hard delivery home. But then again, those are elderly people, and it and it kind of pushes that point. Like, mm-hmm. it was a relationship that lasts a long time. For this, like, to, for a pretty much newborn child to lose his parent very shortly after its birth, like, it's. It's a lot. It's really a lot when you try to like wrap your brain around all of it. I think the up comparison is a really good one because, like you said, that's like the first five minutes of the film. And then the rest of the film is like pretty goofy and silly. Yeah. This movie is not. This no. movie is dark the entire movie. I would actually go so far as to call it like bleak. Yeah. Like the whole movie takes place. To be clear, it's not clear exactly what's going on like geologically, but there's some kind like there's volcanoes everywhere, the earth is cracking and crumbling. This is almost like when I when I was writing this, I almost wanted to call it post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Because like the earth is literally collapsing around these characters. So we have just to let's so to break them down real quick, we have uh Littlefoot um who is a uh I don't remember if the correct term is now a brontosaurus or a, a brachiosaurus. brachiosaurus. A brachiosaurus well, I think, he was no. a long neck. We can go with long that. Neck. <laughs> yeah. uh, that's fair. Yes, sorry, man. <laughs> so there's a long neck. There's um, Sarah, the triceratops, also called a, a three horn. Uh, there's Ducky, the big mouth, who's like a, one of those like duck build um, platypuses. Not 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 platypus. A duck build uh, dinosaur. I forget what they're called though. Um, there's uh, a petrodactyl, a, a pterodactyl. Uh, <laughs> called a flyer and then there's spike who's a spike tail who's an ankylosaurus i I think it is uh and so they're all kind of cut off uh from the rest of their families uh as they have to make their way through this like crumbling landscape while going through emotional trauma um i think that for me what really really this time drove home to me how bleak it is was not the part where he sees a shadow his own shadow that he thinks is his mom but the part right after that where there's the old dinosaur, who they call Rooter. He calls himself Rooter. Yeah, Spike, uh, not Spike Tail. What was what was he? I forget the 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 style of dinosaur he was, but it was like an elder dinosaur that was. He's a uh, he's called a club tail. Club tail. That's which it. is apparently a scolosaurus. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so Wikipedia describes the the encounter as this old dinosaur consoles Littlefoot. And he kind of does, but he consoles him by saying, well, your mom died and you're always going to feel bad about it. It's always going to hurt for your entire life, but <laughs> like you'll you'll get through it, which is like accurate. I was going to say it's it's not untrue, but it feels very much like a dose of reality that is 
unexpected at this point of the film where you're kind of again as an adult i'm kind of expecting it to like uplift a little bit and be like it'll be okay yeah. and it's kind of the message is kind of not that it'll be okay it's more like it, it won't be okay but you'll you'll, you'll make it you'll make it okay yeah yeah just keep swimming yeah there's no uplifting song. There's no melody no. or charm that, that brings you out of this that's this grayness that Littlefoot mm-hmm. and the and the rest of the, the gang are going through. Yeah, the the entire um yeah, from start to finish, it's very like downbeat. Um and there's not really singing. No. There's there is a song. There's a Diana Ross song yes. at the very, very end. Yeah, so and this is that's a big misconception. A lot of people think about that because a lot of the sequels have songs and have oh. music and stuff like that. And this one was not a film like that, which is always one that kind of I love the music and singing in Disney films and any of the animated films. This isn't a knock to those, but what makes this film so special is that it delivers such a great message and has such a great, like, you know, history to people loving it without that making it yeah. be a, like a the pension to make you want to enjoy it because oh well, i love this song i love this song you just love the story and you just love how like everything played out and another big thing which i, I know you're probably going to address was a, is a really interesting thing that they did is the way they tackle prejudice and they tackle the the different types of styles oh, of yeah. dinosaurs as as you were naming and that's something that like is really cool to see in a movie from the 80s for geared for kids that they really just go for that like you really feel like the longhorns the long necks can't associate with the three horns and things of that nature like it's it's really interesting to see that people do that i, I don't really see a lot of movies do that and speaking of children movies wise the one that in most recent years i can think of it's probably zootopia is the one that sticks out the most in my yeah. mind that handled that but but land before time did it 25 years ago and did it amazingly and it's yeah the specific scene i remember that coming up in is where uh sarah's father the adult triceratops uh sees her playing with littlefoot and comes over mm-hmm. and is like three horns do not play with long necks and yeah it's like whoa okay that's like very <laughs> upfront. yeah okay <laughs> clearly yes um and yeah, it's a film that does not shy away from adult themes. And I think we'll talk about this later, but I do think there is a lot of value in just kind of putting that stuff out there. Because I think a lot of that stuff is more apparent to us now that we're adults. We're like, oh yeah, there's subtext. And as a kid, I think like the revelation that there is subtext in the art that you saw is kind of a big one that most people probably don't have until they're like at least early teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I definitely was not like, oh, this is about racism. <laughs> yeah. um, when I was like eight and watching <laughs> yeah. this. But also, it's refreshing to find something that we grew up with that has held up and it still has a good message. Yes. Because there is so much that has not held up. Yes. And, and because of, you know, what was acceptable at the time... It you know it didn't occur to you until you're like re- trying to rewatch and you're like oh this is a horrible show mm-hmm. this is, you know this is, we can't watch this now. <laughs> so there's there's another little vignette scene that I want to um, mention early on that really made my heart hurt, which is there's a little scene where a I guess it's a young pterodactyl is fighting with some other pterodactyls over a berry. And the the bigger ones are trying to take it away from him or her. And then uh, the pterodactyl, the small one, manages to get away with it and then sees that Littlefoot is sad and tries to offer him the berry to cheer him up. Um, and Littlefoot is just like, no, no, like, like I'm, I'm sad. I feel bad. 
And it reminds me of the scene with the flower in the Brave Little Toaster, mm. where it doesn't add to the plot. It's just an extra scene that is sad. <laughs> <laughs> you just need to be sad for a little bit longer. I actually made a note about that. And so when we, we get into Brave Little Toaster, I actually talk about that flower scene because I enjoyed that, actually. I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> um, and I, I do think that the flower scene fits in more kind of with the, the themes of the Brave Little Toaster. Although both of these films, to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, have kind of the same structure of like a group of misfits uh, finding strength in each other. Yes. Um, and it's I would say that's kind of much more explicit in uh, Land Before Time because as the plot moves along, the the characters, once you have the full complement of, of all five characters, come into disagreement about what the right way to proceed is. So... Not only, eventually, by the time the plot really gets moving, not only are they trying to find their way back to their families and find their way to the Great Valley, but they've also um, re reawakened uh, the sharp tooth. Yes. In one of, this is the scene that horrified me yes. as a little kid, where they come across what appears to be the dead body of the T-Rex, and the Triceratops decides to mess with him. And is like headbutting him, and then as she's about to go and like ram into his head, like yeah, see, we won. His big his eye opens up and swivels and looks at her, and it's like this piercing golden yellow eye. I feel like I can always like see that eye. And weirdly, my TV was a lot smaller than the TV I have now. <laughs> like, and I feel like it was huge. So as this is, um, there's another element that was very, I, I didn't remember, which was um, all of the times that Littlefoot's mom appears to him as a cloud. I think it happens two or three times. Yes. Either in a dream or as a cloud in a very Mufasa, <laughs> yes. uh, Lion King sort of way. Like, I'm gone, but I'm still here. And um, to, to bring up our, our own kids, our three-year-old... I think did not understand that that was like a dream or a cloud. And she definitely was like, Oh, his mom's back. It's fine. And then she went away again and she was like, wait, where'd she go? I thought she was back down. And that, that was the moment where I was like, Oh, uh, we're going to have to explain death to her. Like now, like it's it's happening in real time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she went away was not an acceptable answer. (laughs) She went to grandmoms. It's okay. <laughs> um, so they eventually fall into this kind of sequence of one part of the group goes one way, the other half of the group goes the other way. Uh, they fall into a tar pit. Yes. And they're all about to die. Uh, and then through teamwork, they manage to save each other. Uh, but um, Sarah gets cornered by I think they're hadrosaurs. Yeah, the dome heads. Yes. Yeah, that yes. are fighting mm-hmm. and she's just screaming in terror. And this was another scene I did not remember being as scary as it was, but I, I like when I was watching it, it was almost like the the trauma from when I was a kid came back to me. I was like, oh man, like she is in like immediate physical peril of things that are just fighting and don't even notice her. And 
then of course they do the like dread pirate roberts thing um the other dinosaurs kind of dress up like a like a tar monster and scare off yeah those but that that scene was was scary i, I don't know um what all did you find to be the most uh traumatic scene out of out of all of these various different traumatic scenes we've just discussed? <laughs> I think the, the the biggest one for me is it's it's still the the conversation between between Littlefoot's mother and when her her dying words. Like the fight was probably just as traumatic, but the aftermath and when you just get to see like that's just rough, man. That's hard to get through. That's hard to look at. Like, you know, like, especially through the, when I try to watch it, and I watch it as an adult, I try to look through it through the eyes of as a child would watch it, and I'm like, this is heavy, man. Like, I don't, I don't know how easily a child could process this. I imagine not that easily. I probably had these types of questions as your kids have to, to you guys, to my parents when I was growing up watching these movies. That and probably another thing was the scariest moment, uh, bring back to the, the, the awakening of Sharptooth with Sarah was like taunting him and waking back up. I, rem- I remember that distinctly being like one of those like, oh my God, like, like everything's about to go completely south for everybody <laughs> involved. Um, those are the, probably the big takeaways ways for me i think it's also just like hurdle after hurdle and they're trudging and they you know they find some trees but then they're not fast enough and then oh man and then they're yeah. being chased again and then now they're fighting and then it's just oh so stressful oh i forgot about the tree scene yeah so they they find a a uh, collection of trees that they briefly think is the great valley and they get all excited and then these other dinosaurs run down and eat all of them in front of them, and the the characters then think that they're going to starve because now there is no Green Valley. Great Valley. They're they're do- like they think that they're done, um, and they they realize that you know they're not actually there. Uh, but again, like just scene after scene of like just just testing testing how 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 bad you can feel. But again. That scene, I don't think, um, hit me as hard as a kid because I think the enormity of their predicament was is not as apparent yeah. when you're well, a kid. I think also kids don't really understand the resource limitations, right? Yes. Like, to the to the same extent, obviously, that you know some people have a better understanding of you know, I don't know, I guess resources, food, food insecurity, food, food insecurity, yeah. etc. But um, uh, yeah, I think I think that that's not something that resonates until you're older and you're like, oh, that's that's something I thought about watching it and like it's, it's funny you bring that up because like to a kid it's like like oh well I'm starving like that to a kid that might mean like I haven't eaten since breakfast. Whereas as an adult you watch this and you're like these are five babies that are going yeah. to die in the wilderness because they do not have food or protection yeah. to be able to, to take care of them. And I don't think most kids don't truly take all of that in. It's not until you're an adult and you really look at it and you're like, you see how bleak it really is. And then again, you know, it's it's a children's movie. So, you know, you always are like, well, they're going to make it and everyone's going to band together and mm-hmm. everything's going to be all right. But the actual experience of it is really heavy handed when you truly look at how, what they had to really deal with in that time. Yeah. And it's it's kind of remarkable how every time they think that they're getting ahead, they yeah. think that they've killed Sharptooth. No, he's still alive. They think they found the Great Valley. No. Uh, f- first, uh, other dinosaurs eat it. And then it wasn't even the Great Valley. Your, your adventure is still not yet over. Uh, they get separated. It's just, it's just every time it starts to look up, 
something bad happens. And that is so adult. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Um, yeah, there isn't, there isn't a moment where they are just enjoying the adventure, which the Brave Little Toaster does have. It has, it has, it a has some rarity mixed in, yeah. Where they're like, also, oh, this is a big adventure. But also the music, I think, helps with the levity of the film. I, I agree. I um, agree. And the, the music, unlike Brave Little Toaster, Land Before Time is not a musical, but the music is very good. And I remember noticing mm-hmm. that like it was very it was not um over the top emotional though. Probably because it didn't need to be. <laughs> like, <laughs> when your story is making you grab tissues already, you don't need the score to do that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So uh the the gang does eventually uh band together and they come up with a a strategy to uh dr- drown the T-Rex in a giant dark pool of water, uh, which is a, a pretty bleak way to wrap up <laughs> uh, this plot that's been going on. Um, because they actually acknowledge his weakness is that he can't swim because he has little arms. Yes. <laughs> the <laughs> ultimate was, plight of the T-Rex. And I was just like, these are some like homicide level people or something. Like, I don't even know what, what the category is, but premeditated. I, Let's talk a little bit about about the sharp tooth uh, as a character because you 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 mentioned Reese that like yeah they're very clear about like sharp teeth are not emotional beings like the uh, like the herbivores are um, and it's really just kind of like an unstoppable killing machine like the the sharp tooth is basically like a terminator yeah essentially yes. yeah. will not stop. Uh, does not care, cannot be reasoned with, is going to like, come and destroy you. That's a very astute comparison, actually. <laughs> um, so, okay, ultimately they defeat the T-Rex, and they do get to the Great Valley, and they are reunited uh, with all their various parents. For Littlefoot, did you all notice that they drag it out just a little bit? All the other characters get to reunite with their family, and Littlefoot is still kind of standing there for just a little bit longer before he gets to see his grandparents. His grandparents come like on the horizon. Yes, they, they they had to. They they had to make you just just twist the knife just slightly deeper. Just like <laughs> oh. like when they finally made it, but maybe he's not going to have parents, and then they give you the release that like it I didn't thought work maybe out. it because uh, I think the film is like. Uh, 87 minutes long and I think that they needed to like squeak in that <laughs> extra minute so um it was really only at the very end that our three year old I think understood the concept of death because at the very end when all the other characters reunited with their families that was when she really seemed confused about where 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 his mommy go and i was i was like i was almost in tears and like i tried to explain it very matter of factly i was like well she she died she went away she's not coming back now, now i have to ask now was was this the first time you, you addressed the conversation of death D- directly yes wow yeah. okay yes. yeah for the, for the most part modern kids shows don't really it's not a trope that they so that's just a that's like a late 80s 90 early yeah. 90s thing that they there was something else um there was something else recently where a character died. I don't remember well, what it was. It's, it's more um, so like in Frozen, the parents go sailing and they just don't come back. 
Okay. So I feel like I feel like it's usually more of that kind of a thing where they it's not you know, it's not as upfront. You're right. It was it was frozen and she did at one point ask where where's their mommy and daddy? And we just I think at that point we just said it's it's late. We don't want to talk about this right now. Let's just say they, they went away. Um but but this time Let's put a pin in this, we'll come back to it. Well hold on, maybe the sequel will address this because we have some like um we have some theories. Oh yeah. okay, so, yes. <laughs> so speaking of theories, okay. there there is a fan theory that actually all the characters in the land before time died and that there is no great valley that the great valley is like a metaphor for the afterlife oh man i think this is nonsense um (laughs) but i want to address it yeah i mean if it's the afterlife why did you why did they have to literally trudge through hell yeah why did they go through peril (laughs) maybe it's like a dante's inferno thing like They have to take a voyage through the underworld. Like, you vegetarian beings that lived your life. This, these children in, that were born days before. Right. <laughs> must earn your trip to the Great Valley. I don't know. I don't buy it. Yeah, no, there's there's a... That's some cold-hearted um, think in there. Yeah, it's it, it's like a weird hot take, like, headcanon thing. Haha, cold-hearted. <laughs> oh, I get it. Say ho! <laughs> Wait, were were dinosaurs um, cold blooded though? I thought that it was determined that they were warm blooded. I, I don't know. I'm not a paleontologist. Okay, fair. Yeah, we fair. get that, get Doctor Grant on the line. We'll, to figure we'll this put, out. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> learn, some stuff, learn some dinosaur facts. Um, welcome Dino, to the Dino. welcome to to the dinosaur facts podcast. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's a closing narration that specifically addresses like what happens and they all lived happily ever after, and then uh, Diana Ross starts singing. Uh, but no, it's it's clear that it is not the afterlife. They they didn't die um, because if they did, then Littlefoot's mom would be there. Yes. Yeah. That's yes. Correct. So clearly they did not die. Sorry. Even like, why do you need to try and make this film more dark? It's sufficiently dark. There's almost no way that it could be more dark. Because, again, we know that the dinosaurs went extinct. So, really, this is just a brief reprieve anyway, <laughs> as an adult. This is all going to go horribly south very soon for them anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, closing takes on Land Before Time. I would wait until four years. <laughs> <laughs> I, t- to be honest, I, th- I think four or five, really, for someone to watch it, I, I think it still holds up. I think it's a, it, it was done very, very well. The animation's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, the voice acting's all very, very done very, very well. Um, but it's heavy. It's heavy. And unless you're ready to have that conversation with your kids, then you probably might want to wait till your kids are four or five and a little bit more versed in the world and learn more knowledge from you than before seeing it blatantly in front of their <laughs> seeing eyes. Seeing like someone's this. mom die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And again, we can only speak to the first one, um, but I think you can buy like the whole collection of all of them online for like under thirty five dollars. And do like 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 an Avengers style eighteen <laughs> hour marathon of yeah. We're, we're not good with that. We've been no, trying no, to thank you. Inch through the Bond fifty for oh man, day. yeah. <laughs> so my my take on this is actually I'm going to disagree and say that it's almost better in my opinion to introduce this a little earlier hmm. because okay. 
the fact that so when we watched the lion king with our daughter um she didn't really understand that mufasa dies and so we didn't have to have that conversation with her um and we talked in our previous episode about how if you show kids things if you show kids scary things when they're too young to have the context around them they just kind of take it in mm-hmm. and they remember it and they'll get something from it but they won't necessarily have the like apocalyptic emotional response to it um I do think that, like you know, you're you're gonna you're gonna have to deal with the concept of death eventually, anyway. Yes. Um, and this movie honestly does handle it quite well. Like it actually has a conversation about dealing with grief, which uh, that was one of the reasons that I really wanted to include this one in this lineup is that uh, the the Brave Little Toaster doesn't really have like a frank discussion of its themes between an adult and a child uh, in a realistic sense. So I I think there's an argument to be made in both ways but i do think that um if you introduce it early you might get a watch in when they don't when they before they completely pick up on just how traumatic this movie is so okay. you might be able to get a watch in without them breaking down in tears uh the first time because uh back to the lion king the second time that we saw it uh she cried when when mufasa um died yeah mm-hmm. i don't know that she quite got that he died but she uh, she picked up enough on what was going on to to cry so uh, okay, so we have made it through the more bummer uh, of the two. <laughs> Let's uh, move on to The Brave Little Toaster. So the background of this movie is very interesting. It's extremely interesting. It's, do, do you, you clearly have done your research, Reese. So do you, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about the, the background of this before we intro well, the, the I, I, gl- I gladly can because, uh, like I said, I, I spent a, a lot of my time today delving into all the stuff Brave Little Toaster. And these were all tidbits I've, like, garnered throughout the years and I've known but I didn't remember all of them so it was really cool to read a lot so uh, this was uh, directed uh, by Jerry Rees and it was uh, character designed by uh, John Lasseter mm-hmm. and there's a lot, of, a lot of people out there that don't know the name John Lasseter but I can guarantee everyone in the world knows who John Lasseter is because he is one of the original minds behind Pixar so uh, he actually designed um, The Brave Little Toaster based after the 1980 book by Thomas Hirsch and he was going to bring it to Disney and he had this whole idea about doing CGI work. Mm-hmm. He wanted to have CGI backgrounds. He wanted to uh, incorporate 2D animations with 3D animations. And Disney wasn't really sure that they were going to do that. It was going to cost a little bit too much money. So in the interim of that, he was actually working on testing videos and testing um, uh, like uh, pilots and whatnot. And they worked on where the wild things are. And once oh. Disney actually caught on that he was working on this project, Disney actually fired Lasseter. Yeah. So Lasseter then left and then uh, self, uh, well not self, obviously he worked with uh, producers, but uh, they, they self-released The Brave Little Toaster, not on Disney. It was actually released really? originally not on Disney. But then Lasseter started to work for a little known computer program uh, called Pixar Computer Graphics, which was then at that time under Lucasfilms. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was working there at the the base of Pixar, and then in latter years, he's been working on everything from he's a he's credited on every Pixar release from Toy Story and going up. And uh, so it was really cool, like to read all this stuff and like find out all this information. There's little um, Easter eggs in it, like uh, the the apartment in one of the scenes is A one one three, which is a recurring number in uh, oh, yeah. a lot of the the Pixar films. Um, so and uh, Jerry Reese actually met 
uh, lasted her because Reese was a CGI animator working on Tron. Yeah, actually, heck yeah, yeah. I want to do a Tron. <laughs> I, I got. I, I don't know. I don't know what it means to kids, especially nowadays. <laughs> but I want to talk about Tron at some point. Um, I think it bears mentioning that John Lasseter is canceled. Uh, yes, he was. He was um, put on uh, permanent leave from from Pixar for basically for for being a, a creeper. He he was a sex creep. Yeah. Um, he so, he may have the quote is he might have misstepped with certain yeah. certain employees. At, yeah. uh, well, so um, I don't think that that has much impact on on the Brave Little Toaster. Although it is it is funny that uh, apparently, like according to Wikipedia, yeah, the it, it got him fired, and not only not only got him fired. Um, like he literally was downstairs, like trying to pitch it, and then went upstairs, yes. and, and they like called him or like, yeah, you're you're done, dude. You're like, <laughs> like you're you're fired. Bye. Um, so uh, yeah, I I love this film. Um, there is a reason that uh, I I made um, Denise watch this when we were both adults and didn't have kids yet, really kind of unexcusably. Um, but the the basic summation is that it's about the voyage of a mismatched group of household appliances there's a toaster an electric blanket a vacuum cleaner a radio and a lamp as they travel in search of their lost master who's a little boy who uh, whose family owned them or owns them still um and used to play with them kind of in that way that that kids will get attached to inanimate objects that really aren't toys um it is you see the like lassiter fingerprints on this it feels very similar to anthropomorphic objects you know getting human like qualities going on an adventure to find someone or something this is pretty much almost almost every pixar movie that Mm -hmm. you can think of that's kind of like you know his style like straight through so um at the beginning of the movie the the basic concept is that these appliances are in what we later learn is like a vacation cabin um, that the family doesn't really go to anymore, and every day they wake up and go through this like routine where the appliances come alive and clean up the house, um, and then they get all excited every time a car drives by because they think that it might be the the master returning back to them finally to 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 give their lives meaning again. And this is played for laughs, but it is pretty dark. Dude, so I'm glad I rewatched this movie because it started off so lighthearted. It's like these appliances, they come to life, they clean, they do this, they sing songs and they dance. And then they get horribly depressed when they realize that they've actually been abandoned inside of this cabin for what was, I think, 2000 days, yes. I believe uh, the, the vacuum cleaner said. And I- I'd seen the movie a bunch of times and I know the movie, but watching it like that, I was like, Oh my god, that's right! Like, it, like it did. I was wrapped up. I was. I believe it was. Uh, it was little yeah. little Richard playing yeah. on the radio, and I'm like, this is fine. They're dancing and shaking. And I'm like, oh no, this is extremely devastating, depressing movie and about abandonment. Two thousand days is a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, 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 I was thinking about the two thousand days number as the movie went on because I don't know that it that it lines up. I guess it could. I guess that's that's mm, what that's like almost four years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I, guess, I, guess, I mean, he's supposed to be starting over, college, so he'd be eighteen, so he'd be what, like fourteen, okay. thirteen. I think the picture of the master might have been when he was ten. Maybe it was just an older picture lying, yeah, lying in the house. So, so uh, the the instigating incident is the aforementioned um, air conditioner freakout. So the 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 all of the appliances in the house um, come come to life or are, are always alive except when people are looking. You you kind of see them turn like fall asleep classic toy story yeah um 
there is a grumpy air conditioner who is voiced by Phil Hartman doing um, a Jack Nicholson impression, which I definitely didn't understand who that was as a kid. I just, <laughs> just, yeah. like, uh, and um, who tells them, like, no, he left you. He left you. Like, and, um, and then gets so mad when they make fun of him for not being able to leave the wall that he, like, turns bright red and then blows up. Yeah, when he says, I'm not an invalid, I was made this way. I'm like, what child knew, knows anything what you just said? Yeah. <laughs> I just felt like uh, it was just like a three-year-old level meltdown tantrum. Yeah, it's right. it's a tantrum, and he literally, as far as you know, at that moment, he died. But, right, and and he breaks the wall and stuff too. And that was a big thing for me watching it. I'm like, okay, so he died, and they just literally just were like, oh well. I think Kirby, the vacuum cleaner, was like, oh well, he was a sourpuss anyway. And, just, <laughs> and, just over and then like, there's a scene where like at the next the next scene as the story goes on, which I'll explain. But you still see the shot of the dead air conditioner in the background, and it's like I'm thinking like of if these were people, and imagine if these people were just talking as a corpse was just in the background of the of the shot, and they were just acting as if it wasn't even there, which. That's really wild when you really think about that. But unlike Land Before Time, um, like kind of like we discussed before, this movie smuggles in its really dark. So a lot of the dark stuff is just kind of smuggled in like that, and it's not. It's played for laughs. It's not like, yeah. oh, this character just died in front of you. Um, it's not like it doesn't. It doesn't like put that at the forefront, so you have to uh, deal with it. This is something you really only think about as an adult that the vacuum cleaner just just died because as a kid it's just like oh well it's just like he stopped working or something and i mean well, later you do see him get repaired mm-hmm. but although they disagree with the the uh, the air conditioner um they do decide that they need to go and find the, the master um and they decide that they're going to set out on this journey and so they rig up like like a chair and they have the vacuum cleaner pulling it um and there's like the the songs I want to talk about the songs because now now we come to to that that first song that, yeah. what, gosh what's the name of that song I know it's like is it literally go, just called the master go, um and uh uh it's very enjoyable and there's like it's the, the songs are good they're like they're catchy the lyrics are kind of like don't make a whole lot of sense oh you know what the song is called it's called City of Lights y- yes um, yes the lyrics don't make a whole ton of sense. Okay, so there was one thing that I noticed um, about about the song and about the the, the rhetoric that the that the appliance I was speaking. Did it not make anyone else cringe horribly that he referred to the child as the master throughout the entire yes. film? Yes. Oh yes. Okay, so I wanted that, to bring that up. That I definitely. I feel like that was something I because I was in my twenties the first time I saw this. I definitely was like, oh, I, <laughs> I don't think that's good. Yeah, I mean, there's not only the slavery connotation. Um, I feel like if you really want to get down to it, there's something weirdly religious about the relationship that um the appliances have uh with with the the, the little boy whose name is Rob. Yes. I thought he didn't get a name, but they do in in passing his girlfriend mentions his name. Um, but yes, it is explicitly like appliances are sentient beings that are owned by humans. Um. And to serve them. To serve them. And by all accounts, they find uh, purpose and meaning in their lives by serving uh, the humans. And without them, they, they are destitute and uh, serve no purpose. Which is uh, 
Fright. Let's say it's fright. So, yeah, so, and that's something I actually I delved a lot into that because it really like kind of resonated with me because I'm like I wanted to know if it was purposefully meant that they would purposely wrote it in like are they're going to refer to uh, the owner as the master? Is this like speaking towards ownership? Is it speaking towards like you know the need or desire to feel like you're codependent with society or or codependent on your role in society? But also, why would the child be the master and not the adult? That's a good question, and I that comes up later in the film, which we'll, we'll, I know we'll get to, but there's other appliances. And I, it was funny, because you, you, you bring it up, there's a lamp that seemed very connected to the master, Rob, and was very upset that Rob was still in love with these older appliances. But then they even have a little banter about, I was like, oh, well, this is, Mom, this is your lamp. I'm not going to take it. Mm-hmm. And that makes you think that. I'm like, so what's the connection to Rob? Like, is Rob their overlord that they all, like, pray to the altar to? Like, you know, <laughs> it, it didn't, it, the correlation didn't really make a lot of sense because that lamp was not owned by him. Whereas I can see blanket in his connection to to rob and, and even toaster and in the radio because they were all in his room or not the toaster has, i was room. like who has yeah, I, I had to redact that <laughs> um so yeah i didn't pick up until we rewatched it i never picked up on the fact that the blanket was like like i guess it wasn't like a baby blanket but the the blanket is clearly the most like emotionally and and like immature one because it is something that like it was his blanket there is and the characterization is a little unclear um in the film uh and this was something that's that stuck out to me too it's clear that the blanket is meant to be the one who has the deepest emotional connection to the master in some scenes but then in other scenes the toaster seems to be the one who has the deepest connection and there's a weird uh scene where the lamp asks the toaster why the toaster is being nice to the blanket, but the toaster is kind of always nice to the blanket. The the, the toaster is never mean to, to anyone, really. So it was feels like maybe the toaster was originally like more of a jerk or something. The, there might have been some stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor because I that's something I actually I made I made a huge note on. I actually kind of love that they created a small arc right within that uh, those scenes in the movie. Whereas um, when they go to sleep in the woods and uh, the blanket's trying to snuggle up to one of all the other appliances and they all send them away and they're like, no, get away. Like I want to, I'm trying to go to sleep. And then in a follow-up scene, that's when they meet the, uh, the, the, the creatures in the, in the woods yeah. and Toaster runs off and he sees the flower and the flower becomes very adorned with him and tries to snuggle up to him. Toaster walks away. He oh. then sees the flower dying. And then in the follow-up scene of that, Toaster is now being nice to Blanket, and that's when Lamp asks him, he's like, well, why are you being nice to Blanket now? And Toaster's like, it kind of makes me feel good to be nice to other people. So I'm like, not only do they drive home a lesson that it, sometimes it just feels good to be nice to other people, and also, you don't always have to be mean to people all the time. You can turn around and be nice to them. And they also created a redemption arc for Lamp. Because then the yes. follow-up scene right after that is when Lamp sacrifices himself to the lightning storm to be able to power the battery to save Blanket. So I'm like, they really, and they did it pretty quickly, you know, and pretty succinctly, but I give them a lot of credit for squeezing that in there. And that's a message that I feel like any child would see that and be like, you know what? Maybe it is just nice to be nice to people. Like, it just feels good to be nice and to people. And to be clear, the scene where the Lamp sacrifices himself is badass 100 percent. yeah like stands up looks up at the the lightning storm realizes the car battery is dead which uh, it's not made explicit but like if they need the car battery 
to live well, to, or to well, move? So, and they, they play fast and loose with this, I'm not going to lie. But the vacuum cleaner seems that to be able to be at power to dra- drag them, okay. he needs to be plugged into the wall. It kind of seems like they all hop around and move around on their own power without power, but I don't think they can accomplish much okay. without power, without a power source. But yeah, it's it's an awesome... It is, it is just awesome. It is yeah. really well animated. The animation is very Tiny Toon Adventures. Yes, um, I can see that. The the stylistic, and I actually think that some of the same animators worked on on both. Um, I I believe. Oh, I don't. I don't, uh, I don't think that's a stretch. I wouldn't be surprised by that. So, um, yeah. So let's talk more about the flower scene. <laughs> this is to me is probably the saddest scene, um, because as you say, it's they run into these forest animals who kind of start having like a little party and they're laughing and playing and just kind of being annoying. Um, there's a weird thing with like a fish is trying to eat a worm and yes. the frogs are all <laughs> singing and, and the fish is like singing opera. It's very like funny and silly. And then in the midst of this, um, oh, two things happen. First of all, uh, the toaster runs away and comes across this this flower, which is just in this little like shaded area in a one little sunbeam. He was, as he was being chased by squirrels wanting to yes. look at their reflections. In yes. Him. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, as you say, the flower cuddles up to him. Um, the toaster's like, no, 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 it's just a reflection, uh, walks away and then looks back and the flower is dying. Like the flower has fallen off. And of course they have the little animated petal falls down to the ground and then the toaster just looks away and keeps walking and it's like, oh boy. Um, yeah, that was a rough, uh, that was, that was rough, um, to watch. And, and much like the scene with the pterodactyls and the berries, just seems to uh, you. You make a good point, though. Actually, I, I never thought about the the plot arc. I was going to say that it serves no real purpose, but it really does. It, it, it was sets up that the toaster is kind of hardened to like. <laughs> right, yeah, he's like, you know what, man? Maybe I should be a good dude. This flower just died on me. Like it's it's as little as it is. It's still there, though. I think they I think that served a cool purpose. And I think the other, please, I hope the other note you're going to bring up from this scene was how the blanket one yes. becomes the rat king and then two gets dragged away by those rats. <laughs> yes, not, not just gets dragged away. Um, I never noticed this until we had the subtitles on. The blanket says, so the blanket is being pulled down into like a, a rat nest. Um, and he says, help, they're killing me. Oh my gosh. I, didn't, I did not pick up the on subtitles. that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, according, uh, uh, hot take. Watch everything with the subtitles. Okay. On. There is a few extra other like uh, Easter eggs throughout the film <laughs> that are quite funny that you just wouldn't even know or notice. There's one scene, and I know you're going to get to it, but I'm going to bring it up. So we're talking about little things. And I had to rewind it. When they were getting sucked into the tar pit, and Toaster says, don't worry, buddy. Like, it's going to be okay. Talking to Blakey. Blakey's like, I'm not scared. As he's being oh. sucked into. And as a kid, no kid would probably even pick up on that. But as an. I literally. I'm like, did he. Did he just accept death? <laughs> did he just. Did he just go through the five stages of, like, grief and, and just went straight to acceptance right here in front of my face? And no child would grab that. But to me, I was like, oh my God. It's like, I'm not scared as you're being sucked into the abyss. Yeah, it's, it's so hard. I mean, we're like, like we're like all out of sorts, like scene order, but it's so hard to not talk about like all of the like emotionally impactful scenes. And I think that the difference between this movie and Land Before Time 
is that Land Before Time maintains a pretty consistent tone. And once you get into it, you're kind of inured to the fact that it's going to be a downer. And Brave Little Toaster is up and down, up and down, up and down. 100%. Super goofy little scene. Oh, you feel bad. Oh, wait, no, no, everything's fine. It's a, it's a jolly thing. Um, we, I, I want to make sure we talk about the scary clown dream. Yes, so, yes. Uh, the, the toaster falls asleep and has a dream where he's remembering uh, the master as a little boy um, making toasts and playing with him. And then all of a sudden, the camera kind of zooms out and there's smoke. And the toaster realizes the smoke is coming out of him. And then a hand forms from the smoke uh, and grabs the master and drags him away. And then it goes to a scary clown firefighter who uh, starts spraying water at the toaster that then turns into forks that stab down at the toaster. Um, And then the toaster is hanging over a bathtub uh, and falls into the water. And then it shows the toaster being electrocuted before he wakes up. And that's when it goes into the lightning storm where where Lamparoff is. This is just nightmare fuel. Um, It's, 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 horrifying and i actually think that when i was a kid this this was the scene that scared me more than anything else because that clown is creepy that this scene didn't it didn't necessarily scary but it kind of gave me ptsd as a child because it reminded me of the scene with the clowns from Wee's big adventure which did scare me and that's I mean, on top of large marge and many other things <laughs> Wee's big adventure scared me but i remember watching the clown scene today it, I, i'm like oh i remember this feeling like it was like one of those things that just like send me back right to that feeling of anxiety and fear they actually tried to get uh, uh, Reese to cut that from the film, and I, I, I'm not sure, don't quote me on it, but I'm pretty sure I read, they asked him to cut it, he said he was going to, he ended up not cutting it, and he <laughs> just made it in anyway. Um, have, have you heard of the expression, uh, a big-lipped alligator moment? It's like a TV tropes? No, thing. I mean, I probably am familiar with it, but I don't think I've heard the actual coin phrase. It refers to, it's, it refers to the movie, um, All Dogs Go to Heaven was where the, or the originator is. And it's basically just like a weird thing that happens and has, like, isn't addressed again. Um, and there's usually like a weird character, t- typically has a song. Okay. And um, I, like the I, alligator I, and All I, Dogs Go to Heaven. Now you're talking about, I completely um, know what you're talking I, about. Yeah. I, I feel like the, the scary clown is the closest thing um to that sort of alligator moment in this film because it really is just kind of there and it's horrifying and then it and then it moves on and they make a big point about how like, i guess they're afraid of water um and i guess that's setting up i, I guess the plot purpose of that scene is to set up for late later when they're hmm. at the waterfall that they're terrified of of water because their appliances um so we, we we need to like fast forward uh uh plot wise um because we have like two more big emotional terrifying things to get to so as, as reese described um they wind up getting stuck in the mud as far as kirby the vacuum cleaner knows all of his friends have plummeted to their doom off of a waterfall yes <laughs> um, and then kirby who has been like grumpy and like standoffish the entire time suddenly jumps over the waterfall after them so there's like a solidarity moment like no we're all in this together um they think that, that they're going to die. They accept death. Uh, and then the, the the monster truck driving repairman pulls them out and takes them back to uh, a um, a scene that has, shall we say, implications uh, for the world of the Brave Little Toaster. Um, where at first you're like, oh, he's taking them to a reply- an appliance repair shop. That seems good. But... The repairman is the appliance equivalent of a serial killer. Yes. Um, yes. Dis- dismembering appliances. He's Sid's dad from Toy Story. Yes. <laughs> uh, but wouldn't a whole blender 
be more valuable than just a blender motor? Uh, parts sometimes can be more valuable, especially in the times of the 80s and 90s where niche stores were still a thing, where people would fix things themselves. They'd be like, you know what, I'm not going to spend $29.99 on this Sears blender. I'm going to go to my appliance store and buy a blender motor in for $5.95 and, and put it in my blender. It's, it's a different, I think it's a different world thing that wouldn't really hold up to today's standards because, no, it would definitely be much cheaper just to buy a whole new blender. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, or I meant from a... From a, a seller's point, like the, wouldn't he get more profit from selling a, a functional working blender? In, in today's market, yes, one hundred percent. I I guess the idea is that um, like the appliance parts are durable, but the appliances him, themselves are kind of junk that that he gets. Um, yeah, and and like a lot of the there is the the, the whole point of the song um, is kind of that all the appliances there are are junk, which is a theme that comes up. Uh, again, much more emphatically later, um, and there's this whole scene about uh, basically just about how scary this all is and how imperiled you are, and all the initially friendly seeming appliances in the repair store then kind of turn out to be like um, I, I don't know what a non problematic say to say this is. I, yeah, they're like twisted. Oh, I mean, like, I would go straight with Fr- Frankenstein's monster esque. You know, there was the one. I'm a lamp and a chair shaver and this yeah. as well. Like, uh, yeah. I mean, especially, again, Phil Hartman returning, doing an amazing Peter Lorre yes. uh, impersonation as the hanging lamp. That was awesome. And literally just has Peter Lorre's face. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> I definitely think that that lamp is also nightmare fuel. <laughs> Peter Lorre might be nightmare fuel. But so. the thing is, the lamp actually is nice, is the weird thing. The lamp, the, the, the creepy Peter Lorre lamp helps lamp. The, the, yeah. the lamp gives him says, "Oh, your bulb is broken. Here, take one of mine." And he just gives him. He just gives him a bulb. Like he's actually like nice. I, I, I love the whole like, "Hey, you guys are stuck here. Like, I might as well be nice to you. There's no way we're gonna get out." Oh, you guys have been here for twenty minutes and have already figured out a way to break That's out. True. Of here. Yes. <laughs> um, and it is funny how uh, the the repairman seems to then discover that the appliances are alive because they stampede out of there. Um, and don't do they like steal his truck too? The dog. That's a dog. <laughs> the, the dog steals. Oh, you summoned the dog. <laughs> yes, yes. The, um, the, the dog, dog does steal the truck. So while all this is going on, it turns out that uh, the master is now um, a, a, a grown man and is about to go off to college, and actually um, is was wanting to go and get the old appliances from the family cabin. So actually, if they had waited. Literally two days um, would have uh, just resolved the plot of of the film. Well, and also it's something that I feel like happens in a ton of like Disney related films, like Homeward Bound. Oh yes, yeah. man, I just really hate the like. Well, I went to go look for them, and they're not there. But now they're looking for him. And the juxtaposition was very funny as the scene as the monster trucks driving, or um, not the monster truck. They were traveling, and as yeah. Rob was driving right past them, like oh, they were right there at the same time. Yeah, and yes, as they sneak across the road, that that's what it uh, was. Chris and Rob drive past in in Chris's extremely cool car. Uh, I want to have a real quick sidebar about about as Denise mentioned, uh, the master's very cool girlfriend. Who is like super nineties? Um, has cool, cool red jacket. Yeah, baseball hat. You know, I, I liked yeah. it. I also liked how they played it because there was never a single time where they actually referred to her as her girl as his girlfriend. Yes, and they, they did it 
Very simply. It was just like, yeah, my friend Chris is going to give me a ride. And then, like, when you would hear that, like, oh, Chris is going to give me a ride. His buddy yeah. Chris. And then it was this girl. And you're like, cool. Like, they didn't have to make it anything. They didn't try to make anything. And she was an interesting character on her own for the short amount of time she was in the film. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just going to say this. I, I'm pretty sure that, that she's, like, not white. Like, she's not 100%. meant to be, to be white. 100%. Um, which is... A, n- not addressed, and B, was very unusual for the time period and, yeah. and would normally be, it might not be a plot point, um, but people would have been talking about it. I, I don't know if, if people just like weren't paying attention to like kids media at the time, but um, I, I mean, I, I think that like that's good that they did that in a time that, mm-hmm. that would not, that would normally deserve comment. And they're just like, no, it's right. just what it is. Yeah. Effortlessly. Yeah. Yeah. It's really um, cool. And it's, it's pretty cool. And again, she's a very cool character. She is right. the coolest character in the entire movie. I think that was what I appreciated about it was that she was, she was different, but she was the one that you wanted to be. Yeah. She was totally down with being in the junkyard and pulling a grill off of an old yeah. car. You know, like it was, she was just, like, she was cool. <laughs> she has a cool classic Stop car too. It's, that's, 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 like, yeah. it's, it's her car. She has the car. <laughs> Yeah. She's yeah. empowered. She's an empowered '90s woman. And she's cool. So, so good, good job, Chris. You are awesome. Um, so uh, the appliances then make it to uh, the master's family's apartment, and then happens uh, upon I, I think my favorite song musically, uh, the cutting edge. The cutting edge, yes. The yeah. new to, to us now very like '80s um, uh, appliances talk about like how cool and awesome they are. And all of a sudden, the film becomes um, like anti-consumerist yes. in an interesting way. And they mm-hmm. make this this whole song is about buy new stuff. You got to buy new stuff. Look at how cool we are, the new stuff. But it's clearly kind of like it's making fun of these new appliances being so like uh, egotistical about yeah. themselves. Yeah. yeah. The in, And the insecurities about Especially, you know, these things that are supposed to be the new cutting-edge cool thing. They sing this whole song and dance about how we're the best and you need us. But yet, they're so completely insecure because they're worried about being replaced mm-hmm. by these these older, like, style appliances. I, I do love the, the, the weird, like, um, like Brooklyn accent that, that the lamp has. It, it, it's like, hello there. <laughs> welcome to you. It was totally like Muggsy and Bugsy, like two, like, you know, like, like hard nosed mobster style voices that they used for mm-hmm. the, uh, it was like the computer and the lamp. Yeah. The, <laughs> the, the computer is, um, the, the computer and the stereo are the most sinister. Yes. Of, and the vacuum cleaner, the evil vacuum cleaner. <laughs> the uh, the two parts. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting how, um, the film positions uh, this like DIY like re- fi- fixer upper um, aesthetic as being like good and noble. Like there's yeah. value in old stuff. You should repair it, um, and it shows the master repairing and restoring to life the the air conditioner. And the yes. air conditioner is suddenly the air conditioner cries. Yeah, when he realizes like he the really master, did care. Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, the only other character that would repair things is the repairman. Who is a serial killer? So is it good to fix hmm. things or is it bad? I think it's good to think to fix things and to fix things because you value them, Ooh. not to fix things because you're trying to make profit from so them. So is this an I anti-capitalist film? That might be. That might be the message they're pushing. Yeah, it does seem to be very like anti-capitalist. But again, I, I think back to like the religious undertones. Like the the master is like the one who can restore the 
the the destroyed appliances and bring them back to life. I, I, it's a very it, it's, it's a very god complex handed thing for his I mean, role. I yeah. think it's even Chris at the end that says like, "Oh, just get a new toaster." And That's right. Like, yeah. And he's and he's like, "But where can I get a toaster like this?" <laughs> and he is like, you know, he's praising the. Mm-hmm. The scratches and dents. Yeah, and and like you just said, it, it preaches to be proud of, you know, being happy with your good work and good, sturdy, valuable mm-hmm. equipment and stuff. Like, why have to buy something new if you have something that works very well and you want to put the effort out to to keep it, like maintain it? Then why not? Yeah, mm-hmm. and especially these things that the characters have formed emotional attachments to. The, the whole plot of the movie is driven by the emotional attachments between this boy with the stuff that he grew up with. I mean, it is kind of like, it's hard to call it anti-consumer when... Um, he, he still is taking care of He's still attached to like, his <laughs> yeah. stuff. Uh, but um, So at the end of, of this song, they all get th- thrown in the trash and taken to the dump. Um, during this time, they also meet the, the TV... Which was a former... Used to be at the cottage. Yes. And then because, I guess, people wanted an extra TV. They, they, they brought him back to the apartment. Um, and the TV is one of two characters that seem able to communicate with the humans. The other seeming being the, the radio. Um, and so uh, the TV convinces uh, Chris and Rob to go to the dump after the appliances. And thus proceeds... Um, thus begins my favorite song... In the film, worthless. worthless. Oh man! And this is the song about death. This is the darkest, in my opinion, that the film gets because it is. First of all, it's this like awesome, like almost Bruce Springsteen esque ballad. Yeah, haunting song. ballad is what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, it's very and it's haunting. All these cars in a junkyard as they're being crushed by a horrifying magnet and this crusher that has like an eyes and the crushing mechanism is its teeth and it's just chomping as they're being crushed into cubes. They're each singing about the things that happened to them yeah. in their life and how now their life is over uh, and they are accepting death, but also kind of like relenting about like what might have been. There's like, there's a race car who's like, I, I was, was in the Indy 500. Yeah, yeah. I was in the Indy 500. <laughs> yeah. And then he says, I wonder how close that I came. And then he gets crushed into a little cube, and that's it. And there's also a hearse. There's a yes. hearse who talks about, who talks about <laughs> going to funerals, and then it's crushed. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I just want to... Uh, thoughts, thoughts on Worthless? Worthless was definitely, I feel it was the darkest tone that carried through. Because you said it before earlier, all the dark things that happened in Brave Little Toaster were always followed up with an upbeat punch. You know, and one thing they did that was really cool in the scene that they actually spliced it with the TV directing Rob. So it did kind of bring a little bit of lightness to it. But at the same time, you're like, these, these appliances are in peril. And while they're in peril, this dark brooding song is going on where these uh these cars are talking about how their life is means nothing now and they're nothing but worth but just trash so they're completely again it's accepting death so it definitely was the longest dark tone of the whole film where you really, we really got a chance to set it and especially leading up to them actually getting to the junkyard and rob almost dying like it's it, it really like starts to send that message home I don't particularly remember this. I've only seen it twice. Um, <laughs> I, I do remember the like horrifying Rob being stuck on the belt and the thing that happened. Yeah, so next. so to be clear, Rob gets stuck on the crusher belt because the magnet tries to kill him. <laughs> yes, it Clearly, does. The giant electromagnet um, gets mad that Rob so so Rob, the master, 
it is like, wait, this is a picture of me because the the blanket has been carrying. I'm, I'm glad I remember this. The blanket has yes. been carrying a picture of of the master with him the entire time. So Rob sees this picture of him as a little boy. And he's like, how'd this get here? And then he's standing next to the crusher belt and starts seeing the appliances going up towards the. And he goes, oh, this is my this is my old blanket. That's that's my lamp. And finds them all. Um, and then the the magnet gets mad at him for taking these appliances off of the crusher. Like the Grim Reaper magnet yeah. comes in, like, no, these are, my, these are mine now. Um, I have claimed these souls. Uh, and, and drags him onto the, the crusher belt, and he is getting dragged uh, towards the crusher, and it keeps cutting back and forth between Rob uh, with his hand trapped, outstretched under some debris going towards the crusher where he is going to be crushed. And, uh, it's actually like an L-shaped pipe. It and is. His, yeah. And his hands... It seems like he can get His hands through. easily slip I know. Right. I know. I was like, you, like, you can totally get out of that. Like, he, he did have a door with like three tires on him. I mean, yeah, but who knows? Who knows? Um, it, it, it is funny though because after it's all resolved, by the toaster climbing up and... Junk, throwing himself, himself, frog splashing directly into the gears. Yes, and getting ground up. And you see the toaster get ground up, mangled in the gears, and you still, it's still like, oh, is the thing going to come down and crush his hand? Of course, it, it, it doesn't. It stops like inches away. And then Chris comes along and is like, what are you doing up there? Stop <laughs> moving your, I, yeah, I yeah, stop really, around. Um, stop almost getting murdered. What are you doing? Yeah, so now, <laughs> now we have seen another, uh, another appliance, except their death and apparently die um and then it cuts to the master repairing them all and and like denise mentioned it's like where else can you get a toaster like this and it shows the mangled up crushed toaster which within the context of the show is like the 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 body (laughs) of the toaster yes um but again it's played for laps it's not it's a silly Mm -hmm. it's silly I mean, um, the the overall theme of like you know fixing things and repairing things is definitely something that we value. Um, I do certainly <laughs> like try to fix and repair things versus just simply replace. But we have a possibly death trap oven from like the late fifties <laughs> that I've repaired a bunch of times, um, largely because like the, the our options are like repair the oven, which is basically like. It's basically like a plug, a heating element, and a switch that turns it off and on. There's no backup or safety to this. It's literally just like just like gets wired in. Yeah. Um, the options are fix it or like redo the kitchen. It's like no, I think I think I'll I'll fix the the, the fire hazard. I'll, I'll fix the fire hazard. Um. But yeah, absolutely, and and it is there is like a good uh message in a way about like repairing stuff. Don't just buy new junk all the time. Um, and I love the glee that the master has when he makes and the toast, toast like pops a kid, up. <laughs> um, and then goes, you know, ha! And to, to um, I think it's really interesting how, uh, oh, so the, the movie concludes with them driving off for college and they're all, they're all excited. Interestingly, so this is based on a, on a, a novella. Yes. In the novella, they find a new owner. Yes. Apparently. Yes. Which is, I haven't read it. But that seems like a very different ending. 
Totally. Well, it, it is, and I and to and I hate doing Cinemax to other animated films, but it's just easier in comparison. It's very much I read the whole synopsis of the book, and the ending is very much like the ending of Toy Story Three, where it's oh, like yeah. they failed someone that will value these. Like you'll take care of these items. Will you take them? Like, yeah, and, that's and, exactly what I. I was thinking about Toy Story. Exactly, yeah, and that that's how I mean from the wiki synopsis that I read. That's what it seemed as if the ending yeah. of the book was. So one of the things I think that makes this film resonate with me now and resonated with me as a kid is the attachment to um, just inanimate objects mm-hmm. that like kids form. Like mm-hmm. our daughter uh, just got. Um, a bunch of like camping gear we went to the store and and like i, I got her a bunch of camping stuff because we're trying to get her into camping this is what you do you, you gaslight your kids and they're, like, <laughs> they're tricking them into liking things um and we got her this little flashlight she has other flashlights but well, this is loves, the one that she that wants mm-hmm. um and i think there's something very like that rings true about that about like oh like these are your these are your things they are they have meaning to you for no reason other than like they're yours mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of gaslighting, I like the idea of, like, convincing your child to like something that you love, and I feel like that's sort of what we're trying to do with all of this podcast and these shows, and, uh, to a certain extent, uh, hiking and libraries, and... Beautiful segue. Um, (laughs) so, wrapping this all up, why... (laughs) Do we like these movies? And I guess for the parents at the table, why do we want to show these movies to our kids after they made us feel bad and then made us feel bad again? And now we have to explain death to a three-year-old. Thanks, Don Bluth. <laughs> um, what what is what is the value of these? Like, what do we what do we get from them? Um, I think that there is a uh, like an emotional component to. Your, your empathy where you're feeling things while you're watching these shows on, you know, on the television screen. Um, but also, like, life as an adult is stressful, so sometimes we want to watch things that, we, that will make us cry because we're trying to force our bodies into completing this kind of stress loop mm-hmm. and cycle. But kids still feel stress and things on their own, too, so maybe this is maybe this is healthy for them to like feel and experience these emotions. Um, but I personally, I just really need someone to like mean girls, this and turn it into like a hit Broadway show. And, um, I'm feel like Neil Patrick Harris could do some amazing work. Yeah. Although I have to say, um, we did see the musical adaptation of elf yeah, and yeah. it was okay, but yes. the changes that they made to make it distinct from the movie did not did not improve the story. So, if anyone out there is trying to do a Broadway adaptation of The Brave Little Toaster, you, you better do a good job. And it, yeah, and keep and the it, songs, get the rights. And it must have John Lovitz. That's my <laughs> that's my only thing. I, I thought that was one thing I want to say, especially before we get away from Brave Little Toaster altogether. John Lovitz delivered every line. His, yes. his role as the radio made this movie. I mean, not that, mm-hmm. there's other amazing parts, obviously, but he really he, his performance is great. So, and, and funny thing about it, um, when he was recording this, he got the part on Saturday Night Live, and he was like, I want to do this movie, I really want to do this movie, but I have to go beyond this, like, full-time job that's going to take up, like, all of my time, and they're like, let's do it all now. And so he did 
all of his lines for the entire film in like one single massive recording session yeah. wow. um and and just absolutely nailed them. nailed it nailed yeah, it like, yeah. you can't tell you can't tell that he was just in a booth by himself and then they had to mix in everyone else i later. just feel like anytime i ever think of like a radio announcer or like a ballpark announcer or something it's just always his voice yeah. because of because of this film and also um the Rockford Peaches. Lot of the other road. I, was, I knew exactly where you were going. I knew exactly where you were going. <laughs> so I want that. I want that girl because that girl can hit. <laughs> I love that old timey yeah, exactly. <laughs> announcer voice. Um, uh, for me, um, I mean, for being the, the 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 one in the group that does not have a child, um, movies like this, Rainbow Toaster, Labor for Time, it, there's such a huge nostalgia factor for me, and then I get to go back to them and realize there's still so much charm and there's still so much passion in these stories and the narratives, and that's what really makes me love it so much. Is like I love being able to go back to my childhood loves and be like, oh, let me go back and rewatch this, and I'm watching Rainbow Toaster today, and I'm laughing at the parts that are funny, and I'm, you know, I'm like feeling tense the moments that are tense and I'm feeling emotional the parts that are emotional and the fact that these films can still emote those things from a 35 year old person the same way it did when I was a 5 year old person speaks leaps and bounds for, for the media that's created so for in that sense I, it's something I always said too when I, when I want to have kids when I do have kids I can't wait to show them all the things that I grew up on because I feel like I turned into a properly adjusted human being through the, the the media that I've reached in my life. So I would love to share that with them. And going back and revisiting this stuff reminds me how great it was. And I'm like, you know what? This stuff does hold up. It is good. Mm-hmm. Denise said something earlier that made me think of this one particular quote about fairy tales. Not about um, kids' movies, but it applies very clearly, I think, to both of these films that fairy tales function as training for your id okay like on a very basic level they show you like look here's a structure common to human experience the loss of a parent someone abandoning you uh bonding as a group and here's how it makes you feel and it gives you like a low impact way to engage with these situations like denise said and kind of resolve them without, you know, the trauma of actually losing a parent. Like, so through stories like this, you, yeah, you can gain empathy for people who have gone through these things or knowing like how they'll make you feel and understand that with far more complexity and depth and, and honestly like passion uh, than I think just the, the idea of it. Cause kids, a major developmental milestone is kids, developing what's called a a theory of mind where you understand how something makes other people feel and that other people are not just like automatons they are you know beings with feelings and thoughts just like you and you can then sympathize and empathize with them and i think that a big part of the role of these movies apart from just making us feel bad and having good songs and they 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 do both of those very well and efficiently yeah is to give you like training wheels for your emotions effectively Mm -hmm. yeah cool so um I think that pretty much wraps it up. I, these uh, movies, I think it goes without saying, are both great. They're both yes, really yeah, good, yeah. like, all-timer films. I think that the animation in The Land Before Time is much better than the animation in The, the Brave Little Toaster. The strength of The Brave Little Toaster is not in the anime. The animation is not bad, but it's very, like, TV quality, I, I think. I Whereas The Land Before Time is, is, a, is a, a movie. Yeah. It's cinema. Um, it is, like, animation, at like, peak animation that we may never get back to. Um, D- Don Bluth, come on, come on. Um, but, uh, so 
wrapping stuff up, uh, Reese, could you tell folks about where they can find more of your awesome takes on games and media and all that cool stuff? Of course. Um, you can uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, that's Darth Gorilla. That's G-U-E, two R's, I, two L's, A. Um, that's on Twitter. And you can also follow Gaming Buzzed on Twitter. That's my uh, gaming and craft beer podcast. We're all over iTunes, Spotify, Facebook, Google Play, Stitcher. You name it, we're there. And if we're not there, you email me and we'll make sure that we put it there. So, uh, But other than that, you can always also find me spouting all my my horrible leftist political beliefs on Facebook under the moniker of Reese Dunlap. <laughs> because I, get, I get yelled at constantly for it. But uh, I'm always open to discussion and, and we'll always talk to anybody of any walk. So. Heck yes. Well, it has been, uh, I think I speak for both of us when I say it has been a pleasure having you uh, on the pod. When we started this, I was like, we got to get Reese. I know, I know Reese can talk our ear off. About, as soon like, as you asked, I was like, dude, I am in, dude. Yeah. Like, sign me up. Like, this is, this is, this is what I do. I love this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I knew it would be great. And uh, as you know, we're all 80s kids. We're even born the same year. Yeah. And we're... Only 80s kids understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyways, thanks so much for coming. Thank you for having me, guys. It has been a pleasure and an honor. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode, and we will talk to you next time. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.